This is the Shift Podcast. The Shift Daily Podcast has Basim Gohar, Assistant Professor in the Department of Population Medicine and Adjunct Professor in the Psychology Department, University of Guelph, talking to us about defects in the healthcare system, the importance of it, and the well-being of its workers. Aaron Boley, Associate Professor, Department of Physics and Astronomy at UBC, Canada Research Chair in Planetary Astronomy 2, helps us understand why we can't buy the moon or Mars. In fact, you can't own space at all, even though it seems like we're trying to conquer it. Plus, we introduce you to the newest member of the Shift Head team, Duncan Elias, originally from Singapore, now in Calgary, filling in for Ryan O'Donnell, who is taking an extended weekend this weekend. This is the Shift Podcast. Filling in for Ryan O'Donnell is Duncan. Uh, Duncan Elias is here. He's kind of new to us, but not really. And uh, we wanted to introduce him because he has kind of a cool story. Uh, Duncan is in Calgary. How you doing, Duncan? Doing good? I'm good, Shane. Thank you for having me. And uh, I just want to tell all the listeners, like, I've been on the show for the past two nights, and I want to tell them, like, the work that you, Brendan, and Ryan do every single night is so incredible. Um, And, you know, kudos to the work that you guys do to put out a great show every single night. Oh, that's very nice. See, he's he's awesome. He's he's very kind. That's why we keep him around. He says nice things. I was going to say, though. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, wait till mail it in Friday. Cause, yeah, this yeah. is, we call yeah. this mail it in Friday, Duncan. So we kind of right. just mail it in. Like, it's, if it ever comes off the rails, it's usually on Fridays. <laughs> so just so you know, lower your, everybody is going to enjoy this show so much more if you just lower your standards now. That's okay. really the fundamental of this, this particular program. Your history is quite interesting to me. I know nothing about, where you're from so you came okay. to canada um with your family you were in vancouver then you kind of mm-hmm. fell in love with calgary bought a house and moved here is that is that let's start here let's work backwards from here <laughs> to where where you're from and where your family's from okay so i've been in calgary for the past four months um we bought a house from vancouver um just because like many people in Vancouver, I found it too expensive and I needed to find a way out. Um, I wanted to buy property. Uh, I have a wife and I have a two and a half year old son that I want to leave something to him um, at the end of the day. And uh, it's not possible to get to buy property. The, the prices are just crazy in Vancouver. I was renting mm-hmm. and it was just so insane. And so we decided to let's move to Calgary and give it a shot. And we just went house hunting over a weekend and we fell in love with a place. We put a bid in and we got it. And in 30 days we had to move out from Vancouver and make the trip over to the Calgary. And so that's where I've landed up right now. Hmm, okay. So, and we're lucky to have you where, where now where before this <laughs> coming to Vancouver with your family, um, tell us how that, what is that story? This is, this is the part that's amazing to me anyway. Okay, so I'm from Singapore. I'm born and bred in Singapore, lived there for 35 years, and I met my wife in Singapore, and she is from Calgary. So we got married in Singapore, we had our son in Singapore, and over the pandemic, my wife's family had, did not get the opportunity to see my son at all. And for that reason, and also just the hunger to try something new, something different from Singapore, um, we decided, hey, let's let's 
move in the midst of a global pandemic to Canada. And we landed in Vancouver where my mother-in-law stays. So that was a good base. But after a year, as I said, um, we just found that, you know, it was just, it just made so much more sense financially to, to move to Calgary. And uh, that's where, that's where we, we ended up. And in Singapore, I did a lot of media stuff in sports. Soccer is my sport. And also with 2026 FIFA World Cup coming up in Canada, that was also uh, a huge motivation for me to come over to, to Canada. Well, we won't hold that against you. We'll turn you into a <laughs> hockey fan soon enough. Um, this is so cool. Okay, so um, let's start with something surprising, like a surprising fact about you. Because we'll talk. I want to talk about Singapore and the differences hmm. in your perceptions of Canada versus what it's really like. I'll get to that in a second. But so okay. what is... Uh, let's do one more thing. Interesting fact. Pick one about you that might surprise us or interesting. So my passion in soccer comes through the fact that I used to be a professional soccer player in Singapore. No I played professionally for six years in the Singapore Premier League. Um, and I will use that <laughs> everywhere I go. I, I used that's to be so a professional cool. soccer player. Absolutely. Oh, that's wicked. That's cool. I uh, well, you're going to be disappointed here in Canada. Just <laughs> again, we'll try to turn you into turn you into a hockey fan. So, so do you get up in the middle of the night to watch some of those international matches that happen at strange times? You still do that? Not, not in Canada. That's the whole. That's the whole benefit of being here. I would watch matches in. I'm so I'm a huge Manchester United uh, supporter, mm. uh, the Premier League side in England, and I would wake up at three forty-five a.m in the morning to watch them play um and it's lunchtime here or breakfast time so it's one of the benefits of, of being in, in canada for sure the time difference oh, okay so it's about it's about 15 hours then is it 15 hours or is it the other way is it nine hours um no never tell it is 14 hours 14 hours to okay Singapore, yeah yeah okay so it's uh it's yeah so i mean so it's quite the time change then holy cow because it's it, like Okay, that's amazing. Okay, so where is Singapore? I got to tell you, Duncan, I had to Google it. Ryan knew. Ryan knew that it was on the southern tip of Malaysia, but that's just one of those things Ryan O'Donnell knows. Like, he's weird <laughs> like that. He's really smart. And the population of Singapore is about, it's just about 6 million people. It's about one and a half times the population of all of Alberta. It's where I, you and I live now, so this is mm -hmm. that's why I use Alberta. BC, built the same. And... um. But at the same time, there it is, one little old island. That's a lot of people in one small space. It is, it is a, a small island with a lot of people. And um, we were talking about traffic on the show. You guys were talking about traffic on the show yesterday. And uh, Singapore, although not the worst in the world, we have our traffic issues. And in, in Calgary, when I'm driving and, and I see the reports of, oh, traffic slowdown, it's nothing compared mm. to Singapore when there is a jam you're like stuck in it um, for for an hour at least sometimes so um, to compare it to to what I've experienced in in Vancouver even when I was living there like traffic is bad but not as bad as it is in Singapore or the other parts of Southeast Asia like the Philippines and Indonesia they are like ranked one and two I think in the worst places to drive hmm so what is it what is it compare what would you compare um okay well here i just found i just did this okay so it's about the size of dublin um is what for a comparison or, or the bronx new york uh this one says greater toronto is about 9.95 times the size of singapore yet there's almost six million people in it 
Mm-hmm. Holy cow. Um, so what, what kind of city or area is there, like for the size of Singapore as the island that it is? Yeah. Which is barely an island. Like it's just, it's not very far off of, of Malaysia, but the, um, the, what was something similar in size is there that comes to mind? I would say in terms of comparing it to when I was staying in Vancouver, I think it's maybe Surrey and South Surrey. I think that would be a good. Wow. Yeah. That's not I think very that big. would be pretty accurate. No, not for 6 million from, people. You could go from east to west in Singapore, driving on the highway um, east to west in about an hour and a half. Okay. Wow. I'm going to just uh, Google that actually. How wide is Singapore? <laughs> this is fascinating to me. Um, 50 kilometers from east to west, well. 27 kilometers north to south. So 50 kilometers is actually the, that's, that's it. So 50 yeah. kilometers. That's, that's the, that's, that's as from, that's Calgary, like from where I am to probably Okotoks. That's unbelievable. Okay. Um, fascinating. This is absolutely, I knew nothing about it. Um, the average temperatures in Singapore is basically 32 degrees every day of the year based on the averages. Like it just doesn't ever change. It's all it seems no. you must be freezing. Well, not yet. I'm not. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. oh. In, in December and January, uh, I'll be in for a huge surprise. Um, yeah, but it's 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 summer every single day in Singapore. It's it, it's either raining or it's not. That's that's what it is. Uh, monsoon season is is terrible. Like the rain really comes down hard when it does rain, and you you can't be outdoors. Um, nothing nothing like anything you would have experienced. It's it's huh. really torrential downpour when it comes down. Um, but yeah, temperatures stay relatively the same, 32 degrees. Um, it's always t-shirt and shorts weather. It's amazing. Is it beautiful? Yeah, I, I love it. It's, it's a beautiful country. Um, it's expensive and there are a lot of rules. Um, if you compare to what's allowed in Canada. Yeah, you told me some to of those. What, t- t- share a couple of those really strange ones that you shared with me. Um, so no gum. You're not allowed to chew gum in Singapore. You get fined for it. You get fined for a lot of things. You you can't bring. Um, Singapore has a fame. Well, Southeast Asia has a famous fruit called the durian, um, which is a very funky smelling fruit. And you, if you bring that onto a train or a bus in Singapore, you will get fined as well. So really? any excuse to to uh, to get money off you, the government will do that. Um, but it's a clean city, and and that's that's what I give it. It's green, uh, it's clean, and it's it's first world and. Because of the population, they need to build a lot of high-rise buildings. Singapore is famous for the Marina Bay Sands Hotel from crazy rich Asians. Mm-hmm. Um, wherever I go, they, people ask me, like, is that real? Was that like some kind of technology that they put in? Mm-hmm. Um, nope. That is actually a building. It's actually a hotel in Singapore. Wow. Okay. It's fascinating. I've never heard anybody say anything bad about Singapore. That's the cool part, right? Like anybody who's ever been there, we've met some political people that, you know, go through their uh, consultants and whatever, and they all, they're like, I love Singapore. Go back in a minute. I think if you can, if you are right with with the rules and following the rules, you, you would have a great time. But um, for a lot of people, like it's, it's, it's a bit of a stranglehold on, on what their freedom is and, and they may not be happy with what they can or cannot do in Singapore. Is it a third authoritarian government or is it democratic or like what is it? I don't even know. Well, it's it's 
it's it's a democratic uh, government, but the leading party has a majority every single election, and they are almost guaranteed to win, uh, mm. which is the PAP. So um, it's a democracy, but that one party controls a lot in Singapore. Hmm. It's absolutely fascinating. Okay, who's the greatest soccer player of all time? I mean, other Cristiano than you. Ronaldo. Sorry, you got to say that again. Cristiano Ronaldo. Really, hey? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, they, I was curious. I, I really don't know. There's, I probably know four <laughs> soccer players, right? So <laughs> you happen to pick one that I knew. So this is good. <laughs> <laughs> this is the Shift Podcast. We've heard so many stories over the last little bit about. Uh, you know, emergency, urgency care and all these places not being able to open, not enough staff for the weekend. And so there's a couple of different things obviously going on. There are people who have decided to leave healthcare. There are people who are exhausted inside healthcare. There are uh, just the impact of all things that COVID has led us to through healthcare. At the same time, we've heard some other things that not yet, but soon the 988 phone number will come for mental health and crisis. And that's a step forward, but it's certainly probably... I'm going to speak for my guest here. I think it's safe to say uh, about time and still too late as grateful as we are still way too late. Um, and there are so many things that have been moving, but yet some of them aren't new and some of them have been wildly exaggerated to the forefront of our conversation that healthcare professionals have been dealing with for a long time. So our guest right now, assistant professor in the department of population medicine and an adjunct professor in psychology department at the university of Guelph, uh, Dr. Basim Gohar is here to chat with us. Um, welcome back, Basim. It's great to see you. Yeah, thanks for having me back. <laughs> so where do you want to go in this? I mean, your experience is so different because you have all of this, you know, the psychology and then the healthcare and all of the things. But I, I guess I kind of land in the, um, I kind of land in two parts. I guess I land in the humanity of the exhaustion that you see people are leaving their jobs or just not going to work because they can't. And I also land in the HR I suppose, about preparedness. So I think I'll just open that canvas up to you blankly and, and say, where do you want to go today? Yeah, thanks. Well, I think the first thing that I want to say is just express my frustration. Um, because as you mentioned in the introduction, this is not new. I think for many people that are reading about this, they think it's new and they think, oh, COVID did this. And while COVID did have an impact, there are a lot of underlying fundamental defects in our healthcare system. And it's only going to get worse unless, you know, we do something about it. So one thing that I can start talking about is some of the research that I did before the pandemic. So this is an unbiased type research. And I want to mention, even though I'm not going to go into it, it's not just human health, it's also animal health that is being very much affected. Mm -hmm. But there are so many variables and factors and multifactorial effects. So we're not talking about just one causes the other. So some of the research that I did um, before the pandemic was looking at what are the risk factors to sickness absenteeism in the workplace, specifically in healthcare with a focus on nurses and um, PSWs. And there was lots, statistically, there were lots of variables. So you can think of things like shift work. So if you're doing more longer shifts, nighttime shifts, um, you're more likely to go on a sick leave. Mm -hmm. um, if you have had a sick leave in the past, you're more likely to go on another sick leave. 
if you have poor mental health, again, some of these are not earth shattering things, right? But these increase, statistically increase your likelihood of going on sick leave um, significantly. Uh, back pain, so musculoskeletal pain, huge. Mm. So all of these statistical effects or statistical correlates, I should say, because they're, they're, they're not a causation, they're a correlation or they're basically odds ratio. So you're just looking at the risk factors. How much is, how much are, uh, or how much, what are the odds of actually going on a sick leave? And some of them were astronomical. Like imagine going, like having an, if, uh, a variable that based on the results, it shows that you're three times as likely to go on a sick leave. So that was basically like back pain. If you had back pain, you're, 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 you're kind of in a lot of trouble. So then I did some qualitative work and that the downfall to qualitative research is that you cannot generalize from it. So we cannot say that this is what everybody's saying, unlike the statistical stuff. But when you combine the statistical results with the qualitative results, you get a strong understanding of the what statistically and the why. So here are some of the things that participants have said to me. Number one, is people assume that it is your job and you're supposed to get treated like garbage. So if you had someone who's intoxicated and they punched you in the face or spit across uh, the room from you, that's a part of your job. That's pretty horrific. Imagine going to work for that. Yeah. And well, to, to translate that, if you were a server in a restaurant or a bartender, right? Oh, you're getting punched in the face as part of being a bartender. Well, it's not. Exactly. It's absolutely not, right? Um, there are other factors. Um, so some people said age and experience. It's actually the mix of both. So if you're an older person who's going to start becoming a nurse, you're at a greater risk. It's not necessarily that you're inexperienced or that you're, you're, you're older. It's kind of like the combination of the two. Um, but there are other things that people were very frustrated about, which is that decisions are being made without actually consulting with the front care workers. So that makes people very, very frustrated, you know, because they're the ones who are actually living this world and someone else is coming from the top, making decisions for them without having a strong understanding of what's going on. So that has been a huge stressor for people. And that's why people go on sick leave. Another thing is the cohesion or the relationship that you have in the workplace uh, with your, with your staff. Long story short, a lot of the things that they said, there was an underlying factor that kept showing up over and over and over, which is short staff. So here's what happens. You go on a sick leave for whatever reason, or you decide to retire or quit, because that is also so intention to quit, intention to leave the profession. These are also not new concepts, um, contrary to some people, what some people think. But what happens is, sick leave is caused by sick leave. <laughs> so mm-hmm. to explain further, if I, for example, go on a sick leave right now, okay, in my work, and let's pretend that I'm a nurse, automatically someone's going to be working short-staffed or they're going to try to find someone last minute. And that's actually another thing that was stressing them out is that on their off time, they're anxious, looking at their phone, thinking that someone's going to call them, say, please come back to work. So right. even when you're not, when you're rested, you're not truly rested. So then when you're working short staffed, you're going to work harder and you're going to work longer. So you're now exposing yourself to physical risks and emotional risks. 
And guess what? Now you become susceptible to um, sick leave yourself. And around and around and around we go. So that's that's sort of my frustration is because these are not new concepts. Right. These are things, and and I, and this is sort of the academic world I'll, I'll share because I always chuckle about this. When I write a paper and submit it for publication, the peer review process takes, you know, months. Sometimes it even takes a year from start to finish. I wrote an editorial. It got accepted the next day. Wow. Uh, because it's talking about these things. It's talking about how COVID is not, it, like, it's not because of COVID that things are bad. Things have always been bad. And now we're just more vulnerable than ever. It exposed that um, people are working short-staffed and that's the news. That's, that's not, it's not a weird thing. The recruitment and retention. So the employees might not even know one another. And when they do, it's a short period, then somebody else is coming. So there's always new staff, right? Mm-hmm. So there's no cohesion. Leadership. So when so going back to the example of like someone punching you in the face or, or whatever the case is, there's also no debriefing or at least inconsistent debriefing. So imagine you go and experience something very horrific in the workplace, and it doesn't even have to be something negative that like a patient did to you. It could be you experiencing Uh, witnessing something horrific. So an example is, and and we all hate to talk about it, but if a child dies uh, in in pediatric care, for example, that person can't go and tell their partner anything because of confidentiality. Right. And there is sometimes, and I can't, I can't, I'm not speaking on every, uh, on behalf of every hospital or every medical uh, unit, but what I can tell you is that it's not an, um, an uncommon thing that things sort of linger and there is no checking in. And that makes people after a while just completely burnt out or just asking themselves, is it worth uh, doing? These are the things that are are stressful. I think that translates to so many other places too. I mean, the guilt part when you're not at work is the hardest part. I mean, you gotta, that, I mean, but that does land on us. you, we have to have the boundary to turn off the phone or to not answer the call or to, or to say no. And yes, it doesn't change the impact it has when the phone does ring and it's a coworker and you're like, I'm so not in the capacity to answer that right now. So you're not going to answer it. Um, but it, it, I mean, it still impacts us, but I mean, that is our responsibility for sure. And you talk about healthcare and healthcare, kind of like your leave of absence in the leave of absence. I mean, healthcare inside healthcare is kind of like it is inside radio. I mean, the irony about the, the broadcast world in my entire career is one of the things that we are the worst at is communicating with each other. We spend so much time communicating with the outside world, we often don't communicate with each other. And it seems to be very similar in healthcare where we spend so much time you know, caring for the people outside that we don't really care for the people inside. So this this must be a much larger look at at the way humans are or the way we think we need to be. And all of that. Now, it doesn't change the fact that you know, the reality is, is sometimes the door's locked, right? Mm-hmm. Like, Bowen, when you go there and like you go to the urgent care clinic or whatever it is, that door can be locked now because yeah. there are no people there. So while it is good news, the 988 thing uh, is good news. It's still going to take a year and a half or whatever to get it done, two years to get it all done. Psychologists have said forever, like this constant cutting of mental health that's been happening quietly in the background is has been resources have been dwindling 
for for 15 years and i'll say that because i know that there's a lot of psychologists that i've spoken to hesitate to say it publicly you need to know it's dwindling if you call some of those 1-800 numbers there might not be anybody on the other end of it and you need to know that and so here we are now it's been exaggerated through covid and at least people are starting to uh, wake up to the conversation so how do we take an underlying erosion for 15 years which is really so sad too. Can I sidebar for a second? Because really psychology in the 60s and 70s is really when it really started um, and turned into a full-on profession and proper study. It was only like 25 years old and it was on such a path to help us as a tool. And then politicians just kicked the knees right out of it. And and if it weren't for people who uh, worked hard and possibly enabled the process by working too hard... um, to, to make it we wouldn't be where we are today so how do we take how do we take the erosion uh dr gohar and how do we turn that into something that's good because we are seeing some traction but we literally need to hold politicians feet to the fire because the mental health is as important in my opinion as your dental health right we always hear about take care of your teeth take care of your body well take care of your brain take care of your heart take care of your body and how do we get there so i'll speak on some um mental health focused uh, recommendations, but I'll also speak to a, a, a bigger level, which is kind of where a lot of my research talks. Yeah, yeah overall this health. Seem, yeah, so this might seem like it's a little bit off of what we're talking about, but I think one of the main things is that we need to explore, and when I when I mean me, I mean I'm talking governments. They need to explore the opportunities for people to get into healthcare better. So, an example in Ontario, medical laboratory technologists very few schools and just so you know most of them are eligible for retirement and they're leaving mm. and without having without having basically lab results you don't have healthcare they're the conveyor belt of healthcare mm. there's no ifs ands or buts about it like our system is going to collapse if we don't have enough resources and enough people trained to be able to do the labs that's from one occupational group Another occupational groups, and I'll talk about it, is physicians. So this is anecdotal, but some of my friends are physicians, and they're talking about now that their caseload has almost doubled. And why is that? Because there's fewer physicians. If you take a look right now in our system, the hoops that students have to do to get into medical school, it's just absolutely, like, astounding. Mm -hmm. Students now are going straight to to grad school, and doing a master's and trying to publish. So they're getting older and they're pushing, they're basically pushing their personal lives aside to become physicians. And what ends up happening is they still don't get into medical school in Canada because there are very few opportunities. It becomes a lottery system. So what do they do? They go somewhere else. They go to the United States, they go to Ireland, they go to the Caribbean and they go to all these countries to study. And guess what? They often don't come back. So we need to invest in our own education. We have, we have lots of specializations, but we're not many um, like family medicine, for example. So that needs to be fixed. For the mental health piece, I think occupational health specialists and HR really need to focus from a healthcare context on a supportive work environment and that you are able to speak freely with your supervisor or your leader and have a good environment in the workplace. So one of the results that I found in my study before COVID is a supportive work environment will 
statistically decrease your likelihood of going on a leap. Can you imagine that? <laughs> so right now, if you're in a positive work environment, you're less likely to go on a sick leave. Um, I think there is some efforts with employee and family uh, assistance programs to uh, increase the mental health supports for yeah. their employees. Our company did that, by the way. Yeah. I don't know if I told you that. They, they increased ours were, were, um, every day, if you want. That's fantastic. That's mm-hmm. fantastic. I hope it stays. I hope it stays and I hope it increases more and more because when you're, for example, working with a psychotherapist or a psychologist, these people did devote years of their lives to have a specialization. A lot of years. (laughs) A lot of years, right? So, you know, so their hourly rate, it may sound high, but it's for a reason. So if you get benefit and you say, I have $500 of mental health, like like, let's say, for example, support the psychologist, that's like two visits, two and a half visits. Mm-hmm. So is that enough? So like, that's almost just stru- like good enough to just build rapport. <laughs> yeah. And then by the end say, we'll see you. And then the psychologist was like, all right, well, let's try to figure something out here to, you know, whether it's like a smaller cost or whatever. Um, so this is also something that needs to be explored. But the, the thing is that I don't think a lot of employees are genuinely aware of the coverage that they do get through their um, EFAP plans. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, HR might need to push that a little bit and say, like, listen, here's what you have and here's how to access it. So these are some options as well. Well, I, I still think that it's got to be there's got to be a metric somewhere that says that it's cheaper to improve group benefits than it is in HR to um, to find and hire people. Right. Like uh, hiring and firing is one of the most expensive parts of business. <laughs> And yes. so wouldn't it make more sense to keep the people that you have and, and, and make sure that they're healthy? Yeah. So you're talking about an upstream approach, right? So if you are, if you're doing more of the disease prevention and health promotion, you're going to have better outcomes. But this is another reason why our healthcare system is sort of being flushed down the toilet is because we are so intervention focused, right? right. So we're focused, oh, diabetes, we have to intervene with medication, oh, cancer and so on and so forth but we don't do as much on prevention, okay? When was the last time that you saw a commercial about healthy eating and healthy, uh, you know, fitness and and, and all these things? Very few and far, but that is what we need to actually focus on is just to prevent rather than to intervene because prevention is a lot cheaper and long-term has better outcomes than intervening. But because we're getting sicker, we're getting, we're, are, are, we're more overweight and among other things, right? We have to put a lot of the money on the interventions. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's so true. It's so, uh, I mean, exactly the case, cause and effect, right? And, um, and my belief, personal belief system just says, imagine what the world looks like if we could just have healthy humans and start it with healthy parents who parent healthy kids and kids who go to school. I mean, teachers go through the same thing you're talking about, right? Politicians write curriculums. Teachers don't write curriculums. And yep. if teachers could write curriculums um, and they're the experts at it, imagine what that looks like. So, I mean, this is a fundamental problem. Um, that we're seeing. Well, we'll keep the conversation alive. We need to. Um, it's the only thing we can do because when we hear about all these stories that roll through the news about this urgent care clinic is not open this week and this person mental health uh, negative outcome, all of those things 
uh, we also opioids is another great example, right? And I'm not judging people who use opioids, but for the most part, they use opioids a for a party or b for escapism, distraction, and a chance to maybe uh, ease the pain a little bit. So, what if the pain could go away? Um, I guess then the uh, the use of opioids changes really quick. So, we this is it's a generational problem, but it has to start today. And I really appreciate uh, you being here and sharing your honest thoughts about this. It's so important. Thank you so much for having me. And I just want to, uh, to any healthcare worker listening, whether you're a pharmacist, uh, lab technologist, physician, nurse, PSW, um, respiratory therapist, occupational therapist, psychologist, any, any sort of healthcare worker, I do thank you so much for everything that you have done pre-pandemic, during pandemic, and I hope to say post-pandemic. This is the Shift Podcast. There was a kiosk in a mall that sold plots to the moon. I got one for free, actually. So it is quite possible that I have some really nice beachfront property on the moon. I don't know. Um, That is the conversation, though. Who really owns it? So um, we've got Aaron Boley here with us to get into this. Aaron Boley is Associate Professor of Physics and Astronomy, UBC, co-director of the Outer Space Institute as well. Okay, Aaron, let's go to space. Do we have to pay, right. do we have to pay rent? <laughs> so with space, we have this uh, interesting set of uh, law that's uh, just international law applied to space. Um, that really lays out some of the foundation for thinking about things like who owns space and who owns, you know, the moon and things like that. And one of the both cool things about space and kind of one of the things that we're going to have to really address as we expand into space is this um, ban on national appropriation. And so uh, according to the 1967 Outer Space Treaty, uh, no one can uh, can own space, and you can't own it by sovereignty. You can't own it by occupation, by use, or any other means. So it's pretty expansive, uh, and it's because space is seen as this area that's beyond national jurisdiction, like the high seas. So this adds a this is good in many ways, but it also adds a whole bunch of complexity as we start talking about things like putting. Uh, facilities on the moon, whether they're research facilities, whether they're for processing resources on the moon, you know, this all comes to bear. It has big questions, even closer to home, with, like with all these satellites that are going up into orbit and they're occupying single shells to such a great extent that you can't safely put other satellites in there. Um, you know, are they occupying? Are they owning by occupation that region of space. And so all these kind of questions with our new use of space that are coming to bear, and most recently with uh, the Artemis program and you know this first step with, uh, with the launch about the moon. Okay, so um, how is it? Okay, well, it seems like there's a pretty good plan there. I mean, I guess the things that I find really ironic in this conversation is that we talk about colonialism on earth and and the right. history of mankind and all of that and it's like okay well that's cool we probably shouldn't have done it quite the way that we did it i mean what a hard lesson to learn right yeah and then um 
And then the next conversation, we're like, yeah, hey, by the way, we're going to Mars. And it's like, you realize we're actually doing it all over again. Like, this is literally what happened when ships were sailing out to uh, go across the big ocean and see what's on the other side. We, we are, humans are guilty of literally going backwards in time and doing this another way. I mean, we do have this um, knack for, for repeating, you know, yeah. mistakes and this, I, it, it's just part of this um, behavior that we have when we see a, an area that's, that's undeveloped, uh, a resource and, you know, we want to move forward and people try to move forward in the fastest way that they can uh, in uh, whether it's to lay claim or, or whether it's the, they just want to have their vision be put forward. And, you know, that seems to be a standard outcome, this colonial mentality. And that's very unfortunate. But with space, we do have a chance of getting this right. Um, there are elements that already exist in space law that don't exist in other areas of international law. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we, we actually could try to figure out what we're going to do on the moon in terms of you know, sharing it in a way that avoids conflict that respects even you know these ideas of natural and cultural heritage on the moon i mean you started out joking about the beachfront property and so forth <laughs> and um so like you know p- people aren't going to be uh you know moving there and you know colonizing uh, a people so to speak um but there are considerations for natural and cultural cultural heritage still for example you could go to different areas on the moon uh, and some areas now already have things like rovers and spacecraft that have landed you have uh, footprints from uh, the apollo program and so these are areas that are cultural heritage Uh, you also have areas on the moon that relate to stories from people around the world and you see patterns on the moon uh, and those are, have been used to um, uh, within different cultures to, yeah, to tell various stories, mm-hmm. and they have s- significant meanings. And some groups that you know have more meaning than others. Um, and so you go into those different regions, and you start doing things like mining it or developing it, uh, and that could actually have an implication for the these various groups, communities, nations. Uh, who actually hold those portions of the moon to be dear. And so how do you reconcile? Uh, these are big questions that you know, we don't actually have a very good answer to, but we, we do have a framework that would allow us to proceed in a way that's different from what we've done on Earth in the past. Okay, well, that's fascinating, isn't it? Um, do I own part of the moon? <laughs> no. Oh, damn it! No, so I'm sorry to say you do not own the moon because even people... So, so if you look at the, the current body of space law, it focuses on nations. Mm. So nations can't own, appropriate mm-hmm. something. But uh, there's a, uh, additional clauses within space, the, the corpus of space law, the body of space law that says, you know, anyone who's subject to a nation is also subject to this. So while uh, a nation can't appropriate uh, a nation also can't have any of its people appropriate uh, right. uh, something from the moon. Now, there is, though, then a, a very big question right now, and that is 
what about the resources on the moon? Yeah, well, so there are some really important resources on the moon in terms of SpaceX. Yeah, kind of like uh, well, there's a the color. I don't want to cut you off. I want you to keep that thought. But it's kind of like the North Pole, right? And on the on our own, we haven't figured out the North Pole on our own planet right now, right, and all the resources. Right. And then you've not only got those resources, but then you have the fact that, um, and this is where, by the way, you have an education. I do not, so feel free to help me out here. Um, the moon is the fantastic jumping point to actually take off from and not burn all your fuel if you got to go on a bit of a trip. Well, it could be. So it, it depends. Th that part depends. However, I, I think a big um, uh, point about, the, about exploration of the moon and using the moon uh, as a... Uh, Kind of jumping off point is mainly for experience building mm. and it's it is a place where we can actually build uh, a location where our humans inhabit off the earth um, i'm sure we have the international space station but you know it's a big difference to go from low earth orbit to something on the moon mm -hmm. and to actually have that uh, be occupied um even if not continuously be occupied regularly. And so that then gives us this experience building in a place where if something goes wrong, it is actually possible to, to have a rescue mission. Right. Uh, where, you know, once you, we go off to say Mars, then, well, maybe in principle, there could be a rescue mission. Everyone's seen the Martian. And so you yep. have ideas, you know, of, of what could happen with that, but it's going to get a whole lot harder. <laughs> And so the moon is a proving ground for deeper space exploration, for sure. Right. Even if it's not necessarily kind of the, uh, a necessary step in order to go there. Because there are certain launches you might have that are energetically favorable to go directly from Earth to, to say, Mars instead of going to the moon first. Yeah. But, you know, to have these self-sustaining type of um, uh, facilities that you know humans can go to at least often even if it's not 24 7. Uh, there is the question of what to do about the resources because it's going to get expensive and probably um, uh, very problematic to continually send resources from earth i mean to the moon it's possible um, just expensive and when you start thinking about mars that becomes really problematic mm. and so one of the things that the space programs looking at using the moon want to do is use resources there. And the resources you have on the moon, you have the regolith that you can use, which is the kind of the soil of the moon. You can use that to build structures uh, in the permanently shadowed regions of the moon. So around the poles, there are areas on the moon where the sunlight uh, does not shine into. And so uh, it's very cold and there's actually water ice in these craters. Mm. And you could go and mine the water ice and use that ice uh, for rocket fuel, for radiation shielding, for life support. Uh, and uh, you could also use then that to support further operations of space exploration. Uh, and, and these are things that are gonna be tested with the moon program. So, well, we can't figure it out on earth though. Like, well, well, no, we can't. We well, we can't figure out how to share the resources in a way that doesn't that avoids conflict. And um, 
yeah, that's a that's a big problem. That's actually one of the things that we're uh, at the Outer Space Institute trying to uh, address uh, because we do have this opportunity here to, you know, I I don't think we're going to get it right, but we could get it less wrong. Less wrong. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, isn't that... <laughs> so, so, sometimes that's got to um, be the standard, though. Really. Well, well, sometimes that's what we you know we could hope for. So, you know, the big question right now with space resources. So you can't own the moon. You can't own a piece of it, like a, a section of the moon. Yep. You can't occupy it in the sense that you own it. But could you take a rock from it and own the rock once you've taken it? And so this is the big question. Uh, so can you go and take ice from the moon and after you've taken it, so no one owns it while it's in that crater. Yep. But once you take it, do you own it? And so um, this is a big question in international law. And the United States and, and Canada has uh, said, uh, they have said that, you know what? Um, it's not necessarily against the Outer Space Treaty to do that. So they haven't gone, gone so far to say, yes, you can. Uh, although that is uh, the preferred view of the United States. Um, but they they are taking steps to say, well, maybe this is possible. And there are two things that are, well, there are a bunch of things, but there are kind of two things of note here um, in, in terms of what's happening internationally for this um, answering this question, is that at the United Nations, there is a working group that was established on space resources that will try a multilateral approach, a true multilateral approach involving the community of nations to address this question. Uh, and this will involve uh, you know, nations that cannot yet go to the moon. They don't have those uh, that capability. They're not part of the space program. They don't have an astronaut program, but may in the future. Um, and then uh, there's the uh, uh, Artemis Accords, the Artemis Accords, where you have um, these series of agreements that were done bilaterally, and Canada was part of this, and this is done with the United States, and it's more of a kind of a coalition of the willing approach where uh, the, the United States put forward these principles and they're non-binding, it's a political document, but can, trying to say this is what we think should be the governance model for the moon. And uh, Canada signed up for it and, and with that also got an astronaut slot for uh, the uh, Artemis program. Oh. So that was kind of one of the things that went into it, along with uh, its commitment to Lunar Gateway, which is going to be an orbital uh, station about the moon that will facilitate um, lunar research and uh, surface operations. Uh, we, we could get more into that in, in just a moment. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so the United States is trying to go through and get a whole bunch of countries to sign on to the Artemis Accords, which say that the extraction of resources isn't inherently against the Outer Space Treaty. And they're trying to build this idea kind of at a pace that is, um, I mean, my interpretation is they're trying to move faster than what the United Nations can move to, to, to ensure that their view of international law as applied in space is going to become the preferred view right. of international law. That's funny. So like it's so it's not I, I mean it's it's a, a very typical type of approach that we've seen time and time again, many different 
nations have, you know, taken this view where there is ambiguity, you know, they're just trying to move faster so that when the ambiguity is resolved, their preferred viewpoint is the viewpoint that's taken internationally. Yeah, which is funny. It's politics on earth to have less politics in space, which is great. (laughs) But it's like that with fossils though, right? Like in fossils, if you find a fossil underground in Canada, technically you can take it home, but you have to report it. It belongs to the government. They can recall it any time. If you find a fossil in America, it's yours. So So there there are many different approaches to this throughout. And so what we can't have though, is when you're on the moon, is one country saying, I'm going to do this with the resources and another country say, no, you can't do that with the yeah. resources. Well, and that becomes the and real so pickle, is, right? Yeah. So this is where what we're trying to do now in order to ensure that there is a coherent model for doing that because China and Russia are not part of the Artemis Accords. Yeah. Um, and they have already signaled that they're going to have their own governance model moving forward. And they're, they have their own plans for, for the moon itself. So basically... Uh, the moon is happening kind of like the earth is happening. Um, and the, as much as people are trying, there's still the same actors that are doing the same things. Um, so tell us about the, the future of what you said about the minerals and, and everything on, on the moon and, and what that looks like forward if we actually pull it off. And I'm not quite sure I understand the whole asteroid crater bingo that humans want to play on on the moon. <laughs> but okay, tell me about what the plan is here. Yeah, sure. So... It's uh, a physics lesson back, waiting to happen is really what I'm saying. Like we No, no, this is great. I mean It's like when we build so a house once, in a floodplain and we're like, I can't believe I can't believe my house flooded, flooded. Right? Yeah. So, um with with the Artemis program, it's it's really intended to be a system. It's not just a, a single launch or a single rocket uh design, but uh, you know, what we're going to be seeing with these different launches for the SLS, the Space Launch System, and then the Orion capsule. So with Artemis 1, it's just going to send a capsule, the Orion capsule, about the moon. It's on a very wide orbit about the moon to demonstrate the capabilities. And then what's going to happen after that is you're going to see new components of the system taking place. And so uh, eventually people are going to be sent with Artemis 2 about the moon. No one's going to land yet, but just go about the moon to show that, again, it can be done. Uh, number The third then component is to actually put people on the moon again. And what's going to be happening while these different launches are progressing from one to three is that there's also going to be the construction of a space station about the moon. And so this is called the Lunar Gateway. It's a gateway in the sense that it connects Earth and the moon. And so it's this very wide orbit that's very elliptical. And so on one side of the orbit, it gets super close to the moon and it allows or helps to facilitate landing operations and then retrieval uh, back to the space station. And then when the space station is on the other side of the orbit, it's gonna be very far from the moon, but it's also gonna have easy access then for transfer orbits between the Earth and the Moon itself. So it's that kind of key component of infrastructure. So that's going to be constructed along the way. And Canada is playing a major role in that with the um, uh, Canada Arm 3. And so this is this uh, next generation robotic arm uh, that is uh, going to have multiple components that will be able to crawl inside and outside of the space station 
uh, and be able to do a lot of work autonomously. And one of the keys with Gateway that's going to be very different from the International Space Station is that it is going to have to be uh, autonomous at times. So the International Space Station cannot really survive without people on board to keep the whole thing running. But Gateway is going to go for periods of time in which no one's going to be on board, and it's going to be robots that are you know, controlling the show. Hmm. Um, and then you know, uh, astronauts will be sent there for some period of time uh, as well uh, as uh, facilitating uh, the lunar operations of putting the uh, astronauts on the moon. The connection between Gateway and the moon is then set by the kind of the lunar uh, landing system, which is uh, being built by SpaceX. And so it will dock with Gateway and then um, take people to the moon huh. from there. So it's all connected as this large system uh, that will facilitate everything. And this is being done so that there can be very long-term presence there. This is cool. Well, let's hope it works out. I mean, I, seen- I, I mean yeah, it, it, it from certainly from a tech, technological point of view, this is amazing. Yeah. This is, I mean, so many different elements of sci-fi we start throwing in here, and it's like, wow, we're no, we're talking about this. Mm-hmm. Wait, wait, this is going to be in the next decade. Wow, yeah. you know that this is where we are with it, and we just need to get the governance model right. I mean, we really want to have, you know. Even if other countries take their own approach to it, um, so you know the, the kind of coalition that forms the uh, Artemis Accords will set up one view, and if there are other views that come in and other uh, ways of accessing the moon, that can be also quite good, provided that you know there is an understanding of what happens when two people get to the same crater mm-hmm. and want to extract ice from that. There has to be some type of resolution that's put in to avoid having both conflict in space, but also conflict on earth. That would be retaliation for conflict on space, for example. And again, I go back to VHS and beta, right? We couldn't figure that out. (laughs) Which tape fit in what place? Um, This is absolutely fascinating. I think it's cool. You know, it's, it's neat to see that there are ideas going. I mean, I, First of all, very first meeting, hire Tom Hanks. That's the answer because that saves all things in space. I, I can I did um I did go to the National Air and Space Museum at Dulles a few years ago mm-hmm. and the Canada Arm is there, the original one from um, you know, from the space shuttle. And it's just fascinating. I would say I would invite anybody, if you can go to that kind of place that has that sort of space history, I mean there are there are capsules and pods and satellites hanging from the ceiling. Like if you really want to see in some cases, how small and in some cases, how big these things are, it's absolutely worth it. It's cool. Yeah, no, it is. It's, I think a fantastic experience to see these things, um, um, and experience them. Uh, I've had the pleasure to see, um, some shuttle launches and, that must be uh, so cool. I went, Oh, it, it was amazing to to see that and to feel it. I mean, you go down and see any rock. Oh, to, yes, to feel it absolutely, and to know that you feel it, and uh, to go see a launch at night oh, is also amazing because then everything just lights up, uh, and you know, the scale of what's happening suddenly 
can be at least partly realized mm -hmm. when you see that, when you feel it, when you hear it uh, in those ways. Yeah. And uh, oh. yeah. It's amazing. I mean, I, well, at the um, National Air and Space Museum at Dulles, they do have Discovery there as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you want to get into the aviation part, they have a Concorde there, and they which is not very big. And they also have an SR-71 Blackbird there, which is really cool. Yeah. So <laughs> worth checking out. Thanks so much for being here, Aaron. I love it. This is um, it's great insight. Um, it's a little bit of dreaming and a whole lot of science. And, and like you said, when someone says, oh, the, yeah, no, this is happening. That's cool. I, of all the years that we, Chris Rock always said, wait a second, we can go to the moon, but we can't get a bumper to stay on a Cadillac. Something's wrong with technology. Um, I think he's right. So it's kind of, it's kind of neat that after so many years later that, that things are starting to finally unfold again. I, I, I'm excited to see it. Thanks for being here, man. Really appreciate oh, it. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to the shift podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.